0: And welcome to Fully Scored. Please follow me and I'll show you to your table. I'm Matthew Frost and I'll be your host. I'll be over shortly to bring you your helping of Bandmastermind. In case you can't see the specials board, this is what we have to offer this episode. For starters, we've got a delightful little interview with Trevor Cavill. Trevor is currently Managing Director of Sutcol and we'll find out more about that and what it means momentarily. Trevor also speaks about his time as part of the International Staff Band's bass section, and I try and reveal some more of the impact that Trevor has had on the British brass band scene. For mains, we'll be carving up Dean Goffin's masterwork, Symphony of Thanksgiving, with a little garnish of Paul Sharman, who will be serving this analysis for us. It's worth noting that this will be the first part of a two-part analysis. We don't want you overindulging and getting too full now. If you fancy a little something sweet to finish, Jonathan Evans will be joining us for our second instalment of Arid Island album. Delicious! Oh, it looks like your starters are ready now. I'll just bring them over for you. Here is Trevor Caffill. Well, Trevor, it's fantastic to have you here, and welcome to the fully schooled stratosphere. How are you keeping?
1: I'm very well, thanks, Matthew. It's it's good to see you. Um, I, I I tend to tune in by listening, not not watching, um, uh, but it's, so it's good to see you in this environment today. And uh, yeah, we've had a good Christmas, and um, uh, all in the household are well. So but in these days, we've got to be grateful for that.
0: Absolutely. And I'm really looking forward to speaking to you today to get to know a little bit more about you, your life, your faith and your music making. So we'll jump right in with my first question. You're currently the managing director of SACCOL and I'm sure we'll come to talk a bit about what that entails later in the interview. But first of all, I'd like to know how it all began for you. What was early life like for a young Trevor?
1: Well, that kind of depends on how long you've got. But a young Trevor um, was the was the youngest of three boys, uh, and we were the, the sons of uh, Ramsay and Dorian Capel, who who were what you might call career uh, Salvation Army officers. Uh, my parents served Salvation Army as officers in the old Assurance Society uh, for many years, uh, and uh, when when the Assurance Society disappeared from army service uh, they they then served out the rest of their officership time uh, as, as part of the pr department as it was called in those days um, so yeah the, the the youngest of three sons uh, two two big brothers very uh, sporty household football mad cricket mad pretty well every sport mad and in the end um banding mad as well uh, be, be, because of the inevitable uh, army links and, um, and and the focus on playing brass instruments from a very young age. So
0: let's talk about that specifically. What were those inevitable banding links that piqued your musical
1: interest? As a youngster, as I saw my two older brothers uh, take up brass instruments at, at an early age, I, I seemed less keen to do so. Uh, and my very first foray into into banding um would have been in the yp band at kingston on thames where sue stevens as she was at the time or susan turner as she became known later was was my singing company leader Uh, and i first took up the bass drum stick in the yp band and that was kind of all i was interested in doing at that stage and my personal interest in, in playing brass instrument was stinted i would say uh, in, in the early days, um, I, I, I make this claim to, to have a stroke of musical genius in me, uh, and, and it's the genius of being able to make the same noise, whether I'm playing the cornet, the tenor horn, the baritone or the trombone. And I played second everything for uh, a, a good few years and until uh, through what seemed like happenstance at the time, uh, we, we found my natural instrument. So you've been
0: a bass player ever since, including a 23-year tenure in the International Staff Band. When did you first join the band?
1: I first joined the ISB in 1989, Um, and um, Ray Bowes was the bandmaster. And uh, I I was privileged, um, really, to to, to join during his tenure. It was literally the last six months of, of, of his time in active officership, and therefore, as the bandmaster of the ISB. And um, that was a wonderful introduction to the band and the way it worked. Uh, And and Ray made a big impression on me in those early days. It's funny, actually, I joined the band on the same day as Carl Foster. uh, uh, Carl, whose father, Robert, uh, was the band's famous local horn player at that time. And my father was also in the band at that time, pretty much as a floating second horn, second baritone player, with good friends with uh, with, with Ray Bowes. Um, and I, I recall to this day Ray's welcome. He started by welcoming Carl uh, and saying that if Carl was half the player his father was, he'd be an asset to the ISB. Ray Bowes then turned to me and said, uh, Trevor... It's nice to welcome you to the band. And I can tell you, if you're not twice the player your father is, you can jolly well leave now. Ray was a, a great character, terrific musician, uh, and, and, a, and a wonderful Christian gentleman. Uh, only six months with him as bandmaster. Then we had uh, Robert Redhead's uh, uh, term of office. Uh, and of course, then followed by Stephen Cobb. So I had the privilege of being in the band under three different bandmasters.
0: And did the band feel different under each of those different leaderships, or did the inherent uh, style and musicality and, and faith and community of the band stay the same?
1: Oh, that's a very interesting question, and um, I'm tempted to plead the Fifth Amendment on it. Um, uh, but but in, in reality, no, I, I think it was three quite different bands under under three conductors. Given that Raybo's have been bandmaster, I'm not, not exactly sure of the term of his tenure, but I think it was something like 16 years. Um, I guess in, in some ways it, it, it was a, uh, an older, more stately uh, international staff band in those days. Not necessarily old in terms of the age of the personnel, but um, sedate in, 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 in some ways. Um, presented itself in, a, in, in what we might now consider to be a sort of a less, uh, a less fashionable way. Uh, quite serious uh, in in its demeanour, um, and that was right for the time. Um, uh, Robert Redhead succeeded Ray Bowes and and came in, and he brought a freshness um, uh, to to the role. Uh, and you know, my memory of those early days was that the band at that time suddenly started communicating much more effectively and actively with it with its audiences in in, in concerts and meetings um, uh, and i think people uh, really welcomed that fresh approach robert was a, a, a terrific man and uh, robert is a terrific man and um uh the band has always operated with a conductor and an executive officer uh, and, and i felt perhaps in, in robert's stint he he was capable of being both um, conductor and executive officer who just had that uh, that musical skill which was very obvious but also the pastoral uh, skill as well to, to deal with the, the, the fellowship and spirituality of the band. And then uh, Robert, I think it was about four and a half years his his term and then Steve um, succeeded him, first non-officer to, to, to be the conductor of the band. Um, and um, if I'm allowed to say so, I, I, I would probably say that, that my... My sense was that, certainly for me personally, um, Steve's first, I don't know what term, five to ten years or so, would have been my favourite time with the band, a time when I thought the band really, really uh, stepped up. Uh, it, it had, that from, a, from a playing perspective and from a programming perspective, it really had something to say. And, um, and that was a great time to be to be part of that band. Fantastic. So
0: I'd like to speak a little bit now about your day-to-day working life. As I mentioned at the start of the interview, that you're the managing director of SACOL. For listeners that might not know, first of all, could you explain what is SACOL?
1: SACOL, OK, that's an acronym to start with. So Salvation Army Trading Company Limited. Uh, and, and the simple explanation of that would be to describe it as uh, the UK territory, Salvation Army's trading arm. Um, Predominantly, uh, what that means is is the operation of a nationwide chain of charity shops, which number just over 230 in total, um, and the operation of a nationwide clothing collection and wholesale export program. Um, As part of that, and and predating my uh, managing director role at SAPCOL was the fact that I was managing director of SPNS, uh, and subsequently, um, about a year, a year to two years after I became managing director of SAPCOL, we merged the, the whole SPNS operation into the SAPCOL organization. So, essentially, two two companies became uh, one organization. So, it's a very diverse business because there isn't there isn't much in common between. Uh, selling brass band sheet music, Salvation Army uniforms uh, and brass band recordings and the reselling of donated second-hand clothing. Um, the only common factor is that all of that happened under the name of the Salvation Army. Uh, so it's quite a complex and, and varied business, which um, has its challenges at times, but also has its, uh, has its strong merits because it, it, it keeps life interesting and varied. I could be having a conversation like this with you, focusing on Salvation Army banding matters. But when we've finished, I may well be involved in in another conversation with one of my colleagues about the state of the second-hand clothing export market in the Ukraine. Do you
0: enjoy that variety to your everyday working life that you might not quite know what you're going to be doing from hour to hour?
1: I think I thrive on it, actually. i'm not really one for being overly tolerant of sort of sitting at the same desk uh within the same four walls day in day out um but i, I do remember a time uh, not long after i got involved um as as md at SAPcol, and i i was in the car uh traveling with a, a sap call colleague uh and my we, we were talking about yeah charity shops and, and, and all of that stuff and then my phone rang uh, and, and it was a query about a recording project um, and then later in the journey there was a, a another phone call and it, and it was something to do with a problem with the Salvation Army uniform somewhere uh, and, and my colleague kind of made the observation how how do you just kind of switch from one subject matter to another but you do you just you, you keep the whole thing in your at, at the front of your consciousness and it it, it feels like one continuous stream, although you're dealing with 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 a, a, a varied subject matter.
0: Fantastic, and one of those branches that comes under SACOL is a World of Brass, and you're actually responsible for the formation of that, a name which will be no stranger to anyone involved in brass banding. And actually recently, World of Brass has gone from strength to strength, having recently released its own streaming platform. Looking back to when you first created world of brass could you ever have imagined what it would look like today
1: uh no i certainly i certainly couldn't have imagined um what it what it would look like and how it would trade today um we're talking nearly 20 years ago uh, when when that um brand imprint was was created um uh so yeah we were we were right in the thick of if what you would call the CD era, I suppose, um, uh, and the notion of downloads and, uh, and ultimately streaming music um, wasn't in anybody's consciousness at, at, at that time, I dare say. Uh, so in terms of what it would look like and, and what our current trading formats would be, um, I couldn't possibly have imagined that. Um, what isn't a surprise, because I think we knew what, what we were creating at the time, Uh, is the fact that World of Brass is identified as the world's largest distributor of brass band recordings. Um, What we had at the time, um, when I joined SPNS, there there was already a link up between SPNS and Egon, a brand that we we don't really hear anything of now because SPNS acquired it about 23 years ago. But that brought two... Kind of recording company and, re- and recording distributors of brass band music together and for a time um, the sort of commercial marketing of that was just done under the banner of spns egon and then a couple of years later um, we became a little more acquisitive and we acquired the doyen recording label um and we just felt that uh, SPNS slash Egon slash Doyen was going to become a bit of a mouthful um, and, and needed to find a, a kind of a single point of reference, a brand name that we could position this with. And um, the name the Brass came, came out of a, a, a number of creative sessions. One thing we knew at that time was that the internet would be very significant in the way this brand was marketed. So, worldofbrass.com was available. So, that's the one we went for.
0: I don't think it would be unfair to say that since you've been heading up SACUL, there have been some real links developed between Salvation Army bands and non Salvationist bands through World of Brass, World of Sounds, and the umbrella of music publications, plus much, much more. Have you seen this linking and coming together between the two types of bands as part of your personal vocation?
1: That's an interesting question, Matthew. It's interesting the way you, you, you couch it. Uh, and actually, to, to answer it, I have to go back um, pretty well the entire uh, now nearly 23 years at the time that I worked for SPNS. When I arrived at SPNS, uh, I joined in, in the role of head of marketing. And um, one thing that was very apparent to me was that much of the if, if, if I dare call it the traditional market for SPNS in the UK territory, had been shrinking. Uh, and it was clear to me from a commercial perspective that SPNS needed to find a new audience, a new customer base uh, to supplement what was already going on. Ally that to the fact that a few years prior, um, Robert Redhead, in his term as uh, music secretary in this territory, had had pushed through a change in regulations, which brought an end to the era when Salvation Army music was not allowed to be released for performance by non-Salvation Army bands. And at the same time, pretty well, Salvationists were also given permission to play in non-Salvation Army bands. And in some ways, that was a game changer. But in but in terms of the distribution of Salvation Army music, not much had happened. Not much had changed. And you can look at it from a from a commercial perspective, but you can also look at it from an evangelism perspective and say, well, that's that's slightly odd. It was a very significant change of regulations. What, why hadn't we organisationally sought to take advantage of that? Um, and um, in a sense, I joined up the dots between the sort of uh, commercial imperative of needing to find um, a new customer base and the evangelism imperative of having all of this fantastic sacred music that we wanted to share with a wider audience um, and brought the, the two things together. Um, and so we, we we did a number of things. It wasn't only about the creation of World of Brass, far, far from it. Um, it was about seeking Um, new avenues through which um, Salvation Army sacred band music might become more accessible to to bands who weren't part of the organisation. That actually led to the creation of the Judd Street uh, collection, which now has been running for, I don't know, 20 years or or, or so. But one of the problems in distributing Salvation Army music to non-Salvation Army bands, as as you might appreciate, is this, if everything is published in sets where there are four titles, but but the band that's looking at this, there's, there's one title there they want they want to play. They don't necessarily want to buy the other three titles. Uh, so it was it was a case of transferring what we already had in, into a more acceptable publishing format that, that that made it easier to distribute it to to a wider audience. The recordings just seemed a, a, a very natural route to go down. Um, we, we had at that time, a very strong relationship with, with Brian Hilson and his b Sound uh, recording services. And um, there were lots of bands that wanted to record with us and, and we saw commercial merit in it, uh, at, as well as you know this kind of link with evangelism. Uh, and, and that made a lot of sense, particularly once we'd acquired uh, the Doyen uh, recording label uh, as well. So that was just a sort of a natural progression. World of Sound came into being subsequently when we acquired Brian's recording business. Um, and we wanted to integrate that in SBNS as, as part of the obvious family. So, World of Brass and World of Sound sat, sat very naturally together. Thank you.
0: My next question perhaps links to that and maybe juxtaposes it as well. How do you show and apply your faith? in the workplace and is this easier with it being a Salvation Army business or does that give it its own unique challenges?
1: Uh, That's another good question Matthew Um, uh, and of course um, it can be a challenging environment in which to represent either the Salvation Army or, or, or my faith. I think actually being a Salvationist tends to make it easier because there are some very obvious demarcations in, in terms of the way we behave socially, and particularly around the brass band scene. You know, those of us that know that scene know that, that there's a kind of a, a community of brass band following that's, that's in, in contest terms, it's either in the hall listening to bands performing and contesting, or it's in the bar taking a break or, or, or at the end of the contest. You know, it's always been critically important to me to represent the Salvation Army well in the the brass banding arena. So there are obvious lines of demarcation where my Salvationism needs to be apparent, unquestioning, unquestionable, and and where behaviour, whether that be the way we treat people or or what we drink at the bar, needs to stand up to scrutiny as, as a Salvationist. Um, that's, so it gives me an easy reference point uh, to 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 be able to represent the army well and I, and I hope I do. It's always been a, a strong principle for me that I need to I think issues of faith then that and that goes um, further uh, and inevitably deeper um, and certainly in the days when I regularly manned trade stands at contests and festivals. The, the opportunities for, for sharing, literally sharing testimony and for exchanging stories, listening to other people's stories, sharing your own faith and, and, and your own testimony were almost endless. Um, yeah, there, would, there would never have been uh, a, a band contest or, or, a, or a weekend of contesting where I didn't have opportunity or take opportunity to share in those kind of conversations. Often with ex-salvationists, um, and, and and there's a real, a real big thing there about prodigals that that exist uh, within the banding community, but but no longer regularly uh, uh, cross the threshold in, into salvation army activity uh, and worship. Uh, and so I think there's a, a very strong role potentially that we play there, uh, but. Uh, occasionally also with 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 people who've never had connection with with the Salvation Army. So it's I think it's a huge opportunity. One that probably presents itself less often to me these days, because I'm less often involved in in that sort of trade stand type of activity. Uh, But it's certainly an opportunity which is which is there on a on a regular basis. Excellent stuff. That's great to hear.
0: Now, It's very clear to see from speaking to you so far that you've got a huge passion for brass banding and actually have had a big impact on the brass band movement in the UK. For 11 years, you were chairman of the Brass and Concert Championship, seeing the contest grow and become a much bigger success than it was initially. Can you tell us a bit about your time as chairman and how your vision grew the success that Brass and Concert is today? Um, This was born
1: out of the fact that at the time, and again, I'm going back... The, the best part of 20 years. SPNS and World of Brass, we were, we were starting to encroach in, into this world of recording live brass events. And um, through one or two contacts in the movement, it was suggested that we, that we might have an interest in recording the, the Brassing Concert contest. Um, I didn't know much about that particular contest at the time. So I thought the best thing to do would be to go along and, and have a look and, and have a listen and see what happened. And um, at that time, brass in concert was staged in a leisure centre in Spennymoor. Now, there's nothing wrong with Spennymoor, and there's nothing wrong with a leisure centre, um, but a band contest in an environment where the most predominant sensation was the smell of chlorine uh, didn't strike me as as being the most the most positive event to want to get involved with. But one other thing was apparent, which was that. Whilst brass banding is, is clearly in the main an oral activity, i.e., we listen uh, more than we watch, or we should do anyway, um, with brass in concert, it was very much a visual spectacle as well as an oral spectacle. And it was at the time when we were just starting to get into this world of, of video. And so the thought struck me that rather than producing CD recordings of, of this contest um, video would work better but not in that setting because there's frankly not too much terribly pleasing uh, to, to witness visually in, in a leisure center that's bedecked in black curtains to provide the backdrop not not terribly exciting uh, and not terribly interesting It just so happened that um, at that time, Plans were afoot to uh, build this wonderful concert hall complex in Gateshead uh, that that became known as Sage Gateshead. And um, Brassing Concert um, was the the organizers of Brassing Concert were starting to look at the Sage in Gateshead as a potential venue for, for staging the event. Now, that was an extraordinary leap because. You, you had perhaps the typical audience member at the, the Spenymore contest was maybe a member of the sort of uh, traditional brass band fraternity that wore a flat cap and um, had, a, had a whippet by their side and, and packed up their, their, their sandwiches and their vacuum flask and, and, and took all of that in to the leisure centre to sit there all day and listen to bands paying probably about £12 for a ticket for the whole day. And that doesn't necessarily translate very easily into a state-of-the-art concert hall where you'd expect to pay more for your ticket, where you can't take your whippet to sit alongside you and where you're not allowed to take your sandwiches into the concert hall either. So it was a, it was a fairly major leap of faith. And um, But what was very apparent about that idea was that uh, sage would provide a fantastic backdrop a fantastic environment for a filmed version of this very visual brass band event uh, and and so through uh, the early days of, of, of um, uh, securing the recording rights to, to to film the event that kind of um, introduced me to the organizing team i, I initially became just a part of of, of the organising team, um, and eventually they asked me to to take over as chairman. And the event flourished. It became it moved from a one day leisure centre hosted brass band contest into a weekend long um, brass band festival that included a contest that um, had lots of stuff going on to encourage youth as well as leading-edge gala concerts and the contest itself featuring almost all of the top bands in, in the country. So it was, a, it was an exciting journey and quite a successful time for the event. Uh, so
0: in 2018, you were awarded the Al's Medal for significant contributions to the brass band movement. And just briefly, how did you feel to receive this?
1: You're just trying to embarrass me now, aren't you? Um, I was on holiday. I was in Tenerife by the pool strutting my stuff as as one does Uh, and i realized my phone was ringing and it's by them philip morris now philip morris is one of the organizer owners of the national brass band championships of great britain he's also a member of the worshipful company of musicians uh, and and that's who decide um, should be awarded the isles medal each year but i know philip quite well it was clearly going to be uh, a work-related conversation. So I thought, well, I probably don't need to take that call. I'll just let it ring out. So I let it ring out, and it, it became apparent that he'd left a voicemail message for me. Um, and on this voicemail message, he he asked if I could call him back. He wanted to discuss with me the fact that it had been decided that I should be awarded the IELTS Medal. And before they went public on that, he wanted to just have a chat with me, to just to check that I would be prepared to accept it. Um, so I did call him back, obviously. Uh, I, I, my my first sentiment was to, to worry about whether there was any reason why I shouldn't accept it. Truthfully, I was embarrassed at the nomination. When I look at the, the role of honour, as you might call it, all of the distinguished people that have received the Isles Medal over the years, they're all either uh, world-class brass players, brass conductors, or brass composers with the exception of two. And I'm one of those two. And I I, I felt almost intimidated by, by, by the company that, that that I'm associated with being on, on that role of honor. It was a huge surprise. I had no idea it, it was coming, um, but um, I'm proud to be on that list, but, but, but somewhat daunted by the company that I keep.
0: Excellent stuff. And the final part of your legacy so far that I'd just like to touch upon is for many uh, CDs, either brass and coral, over the last 15, 20 years. If you have a look at the sleeve notes, your name will be down there as executive producer. What does the role of an executive producer on an album
1: mean, first of all? Um, In very simple terms, I think the answer is, not personally you'll understand, but the executive producer essentially pays for the project. Uh, And I think think that's about it. uh, because there's no active production role, it's a bit like an executive editor of a, of, of, of a newspaper would usually have some sort of distant oversight, uh, but not really an active participation or involvement.
0: Thank you for clearing that up for us all. <laughs> but uh, as out of all those albums that you have been involved with and taken part with, actively playing or sort of more behind the scenes, is there a project that you've been most proud of?
1: I um, was a, a trustee of the Wilfred Heaton Trust for uh, many years, and that actually came out of the fact um, of, of the the creation of the series of recordings uh, un, under the title of the Heaton Collection. I didn't necessarily envisage um, how, how full a project uh, that would become in its entirety, I think it had six discs in in the full collection. But that initial project, the Heaton collection, one disc by the ISB, the other disc by uh, Black Dyke Band, was for a number of reasons um, uh, a, a, a real highlight for me. Perhaps one other series to talk about also would be the King Singers recordings. Probably one of the most exciting days of my working life, if I'm honest, when when the final edits disc arrived for that first album of King Singer's recordings of Salvation Army choral music, putting that CD on and listening to the, to the, the finished product. Wow, what, what an amazing experience that was. And, and what a CD. Stunning CDs and certainly some of my favourite
0: albums as well. My last question before we go on to the quirky quickfire, just to tie everything up. Um, throughout all the successes in your life, how much of an impact has your faith had?
1: The reality, Matthew, I think, is um, that there are, there are times when, um, faith-wise, you might go on to autopilot and, and you, know, you, you reflect back and you might, you might think that faith didn't seem to be terribly predominant in, in that particular passage of time. But then at other times, uh, for, for varying reasons, your faith is, is right, right there in, in the forefront. most important thing in in my life in my working life today is keeping uh, Salvation Army Mission central to everything that that we do at SAPCOL so whether that's the SPNS related stuff or or, or the other elements of 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 SAPCOL and in keeping Salvation Army Mission central you simply cannot divorce that uh, from from faith if if faith is central to Salvation Army mission, and Salvation Army mission is central to the way an organisation like SACOL operates, then faith is central to the mission of Um, SACOL. And therefore, faith is central to to the way I try to live my life, and in in this context, my working life out through through SACOL. So uh, it's an unbreakable... Bond, there are days when it's uh, more evident uh, than others, uh, but it's never not there. Excellent. Thank you for your openness and honesty
0: in that insight into your faith. So it's time to spice things up a little bit as we head into quirky quick fire questions. So uh, strap in and prepare for things to get a little bit wacky. First question is not so wacky though Have you got a favourite Salvationist composer? Wilfred well, favourite band piece? Probably Romans 8. Excellent. What was the worst part of your Christmas dinner this year?
1: The vegan gravy. Oh,
0: okay. Uh, There are other vegan members of my family I'm not one of. (laughs) them. If you were trekking through the Amazon rainforest, what animal would you be
1: most excited to spot? I'd hope not to spot any animals because I'm allergic to animal fur. Fair enough. Um, have you got a favourite tune
0: from the tune book?
1: I'm going to say Heart and Lee by George Marshall.
0: Excellent. Uh, what's your favourite holiday destination?
1: Some might say boring, but Tenerife. Um, we have been holidaying there for 30 to 35 years on a fairly regular basis. That's so a bit of a home from home.
0: Excellent. Sounds lovely. Uh, top three
1: world cuisines, in your opinion. Ooh. My my top meal would be um, the the best prepared Chateaubriand that I could find. Other cuisines, very much like Greek-Turkish, probably followed by Indian. Excellent stuff. Good top three there. Have you got a favourite concert venue? Uh, I'd have to say the Royal Albert Hall, I think. Excellent. Hello and welcome to Starbucks. What can I get you today? I'll have a grande cappuccino with an extra shot, please.
0: All the lingo. Very good. Uh, What's the most memorable football goal you've witnessed?
1: Um, I attended Bobby Charlton's 100th international. It was England versus Northern Ireland at Wembley. uh, And my football hero, George Best, was also on the pitch. And he scored the one Northern Ireland goal in an England 3-1 win. Excellent.
0: Uh, Roughly, what's
1: the most apples
0: that you've eaten in one
1: day? I've no idea why you would ask such a question. I've no idea why I would think it was three, but that would be about right.
0: Okay, we'll we'll, uh, have to check that out at some point. Um, In your opinion, what is the most challenging tongue twister, and can you recite it to us now?
1: Betty bought some butter, but the butter Betty bought was bitter. So Betty bought some better butter, better than the bitter butter Betty bought before.
0: Very impressive. Excellent stuff.
1: I don't know where that's the most challenging, because I can say it, and if it, was, if it was more challenging, I wouldn't be able to, but there you go.
0: No, that, that was some severe skillage that I wasn't expected to be on display, just said. <laughs> Very nice. <laughs> Excellent. Well, Trevor, thank you ever so much for giving up your time to speak to us. We'll be hearing from you a little bit later in the episode on Bandmastermind, but really a sincere thank you
1: for all your time and words been an absolute pleasure Matthew if I've said anything that was interesting to somebody else then I can only be pleased I hope it wasn't too boring for you
0: thank you Trevor for your time and your words a fascinating insight there into behind the scenes at Sackle and I hope I've managed to shed some light on the influence that you've had on the brass band scene here in the UK so far now, it's a pleasure to be able to welcome Assistant Director for Music and Creative Arts in the UK and Ireland Territory, Paul Sharman, back to Fully Scored. Paul will be a familiar voice to many of our regular listeners, and a familiar name to bands, men and women all around the globe from the top-hand right corner of their music. Paul will be helping us look at Dean Goffin's Symphony of Thanksgiving. In this episode... We'll be exploring from the beginning to the end of letter I, or for those that don't have access to a score, the exposition and development. Well, Thank you ever so much, Paul, for joining us on Fully Scored. Once again, it's great to have you back. Good to be back. Good to be back, Matthew. So today we're going to be analysing Dean Goffin's Symphony of Thanksgiving, and I believe this is a piece that you've chosen to look at.
2: Yeah, that's right. Symphony of Thanksgiving is a piece I've always enjoyed. I remember listening um, as a teenager to an old LP that my my dad had of the ISB um, playing this piece. And it was one that always grabbed me as as an interesting piece and a a good one to listen to.
0: A fascinating piece of music and uh, one that I'd probably describe as quite academic music, but still very listenable. Before we go into the score and uh, talk a bit more about the music itself, can I just ask you a little bit about the context of the piece and uh, when it was written?
2: Symphony of Thanksgiving, um, as a piece, was um, first performed at the International Staff Band's Diamond Jubilee celebrations in October 1951. Um, But the piece itself seems to have started off life as a piece called Thanksgiving for a Special Occasion. Um, which was actually first performed by the Wellington South Band in in New Zealand um, on the occasion of them being presented with new instruments. And when Dean Goffin got the request for a piece for uh, the ISB's Diamond Jubilee, he he suggested that this piece would be a good one with some adaptations to actually present them for that. So he made those adaptations from the uh, Thanksgiving for a special occasion and sent the piece Symphony of
0: Thanksgiving that the ISB used um, for that occasion. Excellent. And how about Dean Goffin himself, a composer that many uh, Salvation Army brass aficionados and non-aficionados will have heard of, someone that didn't write a tremendous amount but absolute sheer quality of music. Could you just give us a little bit of context?
2: Yeah, you're right. Um, You know, Dean Goffin is one of those that didn't write very much but everything he did write is is, is real quality about it. Um, He was from New Zealand um, and about the time of this um, this piece being being written, being published. He just finished his Bachelor of Music um, degree um, there in New Zealand. And so, as you said earlier, there's very much an academic um, quality to it. Um, he'd always wanted to write something, I believe, in this, in this sort of style. Um, but yeah, he was he was down there in, in New Zealand. And, and I think about this time, either at the time of writing or very shortly afterwards, he entered the training college. Um, for Salvation Army officers um, in, in New Zealand um, and, and subsequently became a Salvation Army officer um, and this was prior to him coming over to the UK which he did I think 1956 for, for 10 years and d- during which time he was also the National Bandmaster
0: over here. So. Fantastic, thank you for that insight. So my final question Jesse, is uh, have you had a favourite recording that you've listened to this of this piece or even a favourite performance you've heard or been part of? As I say, I've heard
2: this piece in an old ISB recording, which is one that always stayed in my mind. You know, you hear those recordings and the way they're played um, often sticks with you. And and as a teenager, that was very much so of of the International Staff Band one. Um, But for me, being able to play it um, latterly as a member of the International Staff Band was great and to record it with them. I think my favourite performance probably was the one we did for ISB 120. On the Friday night at Cadogan Hall with the New York staff band, uh, we played this, we played symphony that's getting massed, um, which obviously 60 years after um, it was originally written for the the Diamond Jubilee was a a good
0: performance to be a part of. Fantastic. So let's delve into the score. For those listening at home, if you're interested to follow along with the score, this can be available to purchase on the Salvation Army Music Index if you wish to follow. So let's look from the very beginning. It's a bold opening for a piece, isn't it? It is a
2: really bold opening, and it sort of gets straight in there, doesn't it? It's, it, it's just right from the off. with there. There's no. There's no. Um, there's no like introduction as such right from that first note we're off and this this bold opening statement these first four bars um, um that just really announced this um joyous you know it's, it's marked allegro Gioioso, so that joyfulness of, of, of thanksgiving really that we hear right from the off um in that in that opening section now obviously um dean conceived this piece in a it says in the school as a free adaptation of sonata form um and this opening, it really is very much the first subject of, of, of the exposition. For those that know your um, sonata form, you have your exposition where you present all your music, then you have your development, um, where you develop the music, and then the recapitulation where, where, where you restate the earlier theme. So this exposition and this first subject really gets us going right from the off. Um, very rhythmic, very uh, big, big chords from, from, from the start. Um, Now, this first subject comes back a few times, as it's wont to do, um, but in these sort of first three bars, the only time this comes where it is rhythmically in unison, we'll see later on where he he changes things slightly, but at this point, right from the off, it's just that opening um, rhythmic unison that really
0: gives it its its strength, I think, right from the opening. Fantastic. And then we head into letter A I've got on my score, and the... um the intensity comes out of the music, and it drops down. I think it might be fair to say that the soprano and the solo cornet parts are here are very violinistic, if that's a word. Yeah, absolutely. It's very
2: classical in its in, it, in its in its in its way. It's it's textured here, and, and interestingly, here at A, it is a very simple texture. You've got the melody line, as you say, in the solo cornet and soprano. Um, but then the accompanying parts are very, again, it's all the same rhythm. It's all the way through, it's, it's the same rhythm for, these, uh, for the accompaniment to this, which actually, again, when this comes later, we'll see the more intricacy it puts into this, into this little phrase. But for this point, it's a very um, straightforward textually setting um, of this little bridge passage that takes us um, after the first subject.
0: So, and as you said, that takes us through to section B, Uh, where we have a slightly different setting of this opening motif. What are the differences here between the two settings? So here
2: you've you've had a little bit of building up um, for the bridge passage, and and it's almost that... um, the dominant seventh chord, the eight bars before building us and building the tension back into B, um, with some scalic passages there. And then in the basses and euphonium in particular now, at letter B, where the first subject is, is, is um, restated, you see that sort of scalic passage there in the basses and euphonium that gives it a little bit more life, a little bit more movement. Um, the other thing to point out is also in the baritones there, in that first bar of B, Whereas I'd said before, we we're all rhythmic unison with those two minutes. This time, the baritones have that syncopated feel, where they're almost answering a beat later, um, and the rest of the band, which, which again, just gives more movement, more uh, vibrancy, I think, to it. And then, in the second half of this, uh, the second four bars of this um, first subject, this time, you've got that um, an almost syncopated. Um, motif in the bars, in the baritones and the euphoniums and basses, um, which when we've got this falling passage in the cornets and the horns, um, they're following a sort of quaver beat later. (laughs) Which again, just helps with the movement and the flow through that section than what we had at the beginning.
0: Fantastic. And that takes us through to section C. Now, I don't think, again, it would be unfair to compare this piece to sort of early Romantic-era music. I'm thinking sort of Brahms or Mendelssohn in particular, and I think we have some moments of Tchaikovsky-esque moments later on. But uh, we have this repeated sort of ostinato in the horns and baritones, and a very different feeling here at Letter C. Could you talk us through this section?
2: Yeah, you've, you're right. Um, this accompaniment, this, accompanying, this, this um, crescendo and diminuendo, two-bar uh, phrase throughout this whole section, again... Um gives gives that solidity to the accompaniment throughout this section. Um, and here the second subject of the exhibition comes in in, in the soprano, interestingly, um, where you know you've had that long D precursed um, in the trombones. Then the soprano takes this over as the beginning of the melody, a very long note and a very big um. Build up to have to do in that sort of cantabile style over the top of that accompaniment, with the with the ups and downs and the ebbs and flows that that accompaniment um, gives us in a very melodic. It's Mark cantabile style in in the soprano, and for the soprano player to be able to just sing those um, intervals out and that melody, and keeping that that smooth through there. It's a very much in contrast to that bold opening, and even to the bridge passage we've had um, before. he's using this contrast between the the G major chord going to the B flat and just keep repeating that over and over again, um, which actually uses in other places within the score um, as well, sort of giving giving that, that momentum harmonically as well.
0: Excellent. And that takes us through to letter D where again, the music changes and we have some new ideas and motifs.
2: And this is an important part really, um, whereas it, just, it could be just seen as another, almost a bridge interconnecting passage. But actually, the, if, if you look at the euphonium part um, through, letter, through section D, particularly those first three or four bars. Mm-hmm. Fragments from that are used throughout the piece. Um so you think of that first two bars in particular, and you look four bars later in the first trombone, bar six in D in the first cornets, later on in the trombone and the soprano, that ba 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 comes comes through a lot. Um, and it comes a lot later in the piece. And as I say, what looks like a little bridge interconnecting section thematically is important for, for what is to come. Um, later later in the piece through there. And again he's using that um, E flat to G, that third interval in chords throughout this section as well to, to, to maintain a sort of similar harmonic feel that it had
0: at section C Excellent and, and letter E com Fuoco is Marx and the music gets a little bit feisty here. Can you tell us what happens musically?
2: Yeah, so as you say, it, it, com Fuoco you know, lots of of energy through this section on any of these arpeggiate figures that go through there. Um, And then a little bit later, so halfway through E, as I was saying about this theme from the section D, if you look in the trombones and the baritones, first of all, um, the the, the notes that are marked tenuto, that's very much a reference to the theme from the euphonium we had at section D, um, which is then copied by the horns a couple of bars later. And even the quaver, a little passage in bars 789 of E, the solo chord and soprano line there, uses that similar theme um, from that. So that is all really taken from the theme stated at D. So again, lots of life, lots of energy at this point, um, before we come back down in the commando um, at the top of page 24 there, where we bring it back. And again, all this page, if you look at all the little themes from this page, they are taken from that euphonium little theme that we've had earlier on at section uh, section D.
0: Absolutely, you might miss it actually, if you're skimming yeah. over this, might you the augmented version in the horns yeah. the baritones and trombones it's Absolutely. fascinating how you yeah. can take such a small melody and extend
2: it so and, and then actually, what happens when we've gone through that section, we get our first sort of almost uh a precursor to praise my soul um four bars before the end of that page there um in the first cornets, end cornets, and trombones, the four notes of the beginning of praise my soul um first heard at that point there and then repeated in the cornets, trombones um, for, four bars later as well. Um, that that then takes us through some more arpeggiate stuff. Um, again, jojoso G- G- going through those four bars there before we come back to the second subject um, that we had initially um, earlier on, again in the soprano. A very different feeling now in the accompaniment, where before we had the the, um, unison rhythm with the ups and downs. Now we have the little horn horn figure um, in contrast and in counterpoint with the euphoniums and basses as well. Each other again, giving that flow. The same soprano line again, cantabile, uh, very, very beautiful and very um, smooth um, way of playing that. Very much needed through there. We have the, the baritone counter melody along with the horns there, and then at letter G, we repeat the melody in the solo chorus. This time, there's that ornamentation on the on the quavers in bar two and bar four. instead of just coming down the scale, we have the cornets giving a little bit more ornamentation um, through that there. Um, Coming out of that second subject into this sort of section of a pedal, the pedal F going through there. Again, if you look in the horns and uh, flugel, references to the euphonium theme, the little subsidiary theme from earlier. And then again, another praise my soul uh, reference in the trombones. Uh, the accented left octaves um, halfway through, halfway through that section, which brings us right down through letter H, where we're getting um, more mysterious through this section. These little references keep coming to praise my soul. The octave uh, minims. This, this time, first cornet, first trombone. We're coming to the end of the, the exposition section of what would be the sonata form, and a little this, this cadetta, um that it's called in the score notes, uh, which is this lovely setting of uh, for all the saints. Now, the, the idea here is that this is giving thanks for all the those of the earlier bandsmen, the pioneer bandsmen that have that have gone that have gone before, um, but it, it's a it's a lovely setting. This very very um, in a sort of chorale style through this, with a, with a lovely little um, obbligato, if you like, from the solar cornet, the muted cornet there. Again, with that solar cornet feature, is completely taken from the euphonium theme, um, early on at D. Um, and
0: uh, who better to play a chorale than the trombone section there at I? Exactly. Could you just tell us a little bit about this tune, St Philip, and the words that we associate it uh, with for all the saints?
2: So, yeah, the tune um, St Philip is, is used here. And, it, and it's, it's, it's the words really of the first line that we're looking at or that, that, that Dean was looking at with this, with For all the saints who from their labours rest, who they by faith before the world confessed. Thy name, O Jesus, be forever blessed. Hallelujah. And, and it's all very, um, very meditative. It's a very, um, yeah, very thoughtful way of remembering um, those that have gone before, even on the hallelujahs that we get to um towards the end. And then it's that hallelujah is then repeated um, as a, as an echo um in the in the first and second cornets um, there um, as well before we move into section J.
0: Thank you Paul for your time and research. We'll be studying the second half of Symphony of Thanksgiving in our next episode where Paul will be joining us once again as we look at the recapitulation and extended coda. It's now time for Arid Island Album where we invite a guest onto the podcast and ask them the question that's on the tip of everyone's tongue. If you were stranded on a desert and arid island and could only take one album with you, what would that album be, and why? In this episode, it's my pleasure to welcome Jonathan Evans, no stranger to Fully Scored as a multi-time Bandmastermind at Home winner and runner-up. Jonathan it's a pleasure to have you here on Fully Scored. How are you keeping?
3: I'm very well thank you Matthew. Thank you for having me on. I love this podcast you're doing a great job so yeah appreciate you inviting me on.
0: Thank you very much. Now
3: could you tell us a little bit about yourselves for listeners that haven't had the privilege of meeting you? course. So I'm Jonathan, Um, I'm married to Ellie and we have a a baby daughter Sophie who's 11 weeks old today actually. Um, I'm a teacher in Manchester and we live in Sale which is just a suburb of of Greater Manchester. We go uh, and worship at the court in Sale where I'm fortunate to be the bandmaster Um, and I still play the trombone as well and I've been in the, the, the staff band for about eight years and um, that's probably all the things that listeners to this podcast would be interested in about me I think. Excellent and I believe you're a quite
0: a cricket fan as well is that
3: right? Well I was um, until the last six weeks happened so yeah I'm trying to focus on being a Newcastle fan now that I think that's going to get better for me.
0: Okay well we'll watch with interest or someone else will I don't know a thing. About <laughs> <it>. <laughs>
3: I'll Excellent. tell
0: you about it after. Great I look forward to that conversation and uh, glazing over there. <laughs> And how is fatherhood for the first time treating you?
3: I love it, absolutely love it, it's wonderful. Um, Not without its challenges, as as all the parents will appreciate, but yeah, we're absolutely loving it and having a great time, yeah.
0: Excellent, now I did tell you that I was gonna be asking you a very challenging question. So I hope you're ready. What mouthpiece do you use?
3: Oh, it's a bit of a weird answer. I use a Con 5G mouthpiece, which is not especially common but it was the one that was in the box when my teacher gave it to me and um, I've never felt the need to change. I'm not that knowledgeable on mouthpieces. So as long as it keeps working and something comes out the other end, I'll keep using it.
0: Fantastic. Well, we know almost everything we need to know about you for now, except from one very important question. If you were stuck on an arid island and you could only take one album with you, what album would it be and why?
3: I actually found this really hard. Matthew, because I think maybe people of, of our generation, um, albums are a bit killed off by shuffle, really. And so when I think of the music I listened to as a child, and limiting it to, to Salvation Army band music, I think of tracks like Is the Light from the album Odyssey, I wore that one out, and Kingdom Triumph from, from the album of the same name, both staff band recordings. Um, in terms of albums themselves, there are some important albums to me. The first trombone solo album I got was uh, Comrades with Andrew Justice and Nick Hudson and the Enfield Band, which I loved. The first staff band album I bought with my own money was Supremacy, which is perhaps not a favourite album, but significant for, for that reason. It's got a great tracks on it, Dudley Bright, Plain Life's Command, When I Survey with the trombones, City of Gods, a great piece as well from Brian Bowen. But the album I, I've chosen would be one from 1996, and it's, it's another ISB album, and that's Manuscripts. Um, I think I've chosen it probably for a different reason to many that would pick that album. Uh, I know it was, it was a very much a revolutionary album at the time, the CD-ROM element, there were player profiles and I know it's a favorite of many. That kind of passed me by because I was only four years old at the time. So I I don't really appreciate that aspect. So I purely come back to it for for the playing and for the repertoire. Um, It's a fantastic band on that CD. You've got... um, David Dawes, Derek Kane, Andrew Justice—I think all, all playing at their peak as well—and the creativity of the writing on that album from Te with its mix of medieval and and jazz music. You've got Shine Down, which is one of the first almost lollipop throwaway fun pieces I think in the repertoire. A really serious contemporary piece like Born to Battle from Brenton Broadstock, fantastic writing. The beauty of of by Kevin Norbury. Um, piece like Isaiah 40 which is just one of the most significant pieces in the in our in our heritage Um, but then also a really great message in the music the arrangement of Shenandoah from Len Ballantyne set to the words of mid all the traffic and it's a very busy cd there's a lot of notes there's a lot going on but it's a a wonderful track for just finding that quiet place and uh, and asking God to to dwell with within you at that point amid the the busyness of that album and also the, the busyness of life. And I think 25 years on, as a, as a concert repertoire CD, it's still the standard, both for bands making the CDs, but also for writers who are seeking to say something new and something fresh, and I'm not sure it's been surpassed yet.
0: Brilliant. Thank you ever so much, Jonathan. Profound, but you swung me over to your argument there, and I completely agree as well. Excellent album. Thanks, Matthew. Thank you, Jonathan. Always a pleasure speaking to you. Now we welcome Trevor back as we put his mind to the test in Band Mastermind. Well, this brings us to our final segment in the podcast, and that is the ever loved, possibly or ever despised. You can make up your own opinion, but it is Band Mastermind. And I'm joined once again by Trevor Caffell. So Trevor, are you excited or nervous to be putting your mind to the test?
1: I'm nervously excited, Matthew, and all set to go.
0: Excellent. Covering all bases there. So just for those that may not have listened before, you'll have one minute and 30 seconds to answer as many band trivia questions as you can correctly in that time. So without further ado, Trevor Caffle, are you ready to play Band Mastermind? I'm ready. Then your time Starts now. Which Ray Steadman Allen piece's second movement is written to imitate a banjo? Pass. Okay. Which corps does German staff man staff bandmaster Heinrich Schmidt attend?
1: Oddly I know that some of this German staff band attend the core in Copenhagen, but I don't think Heinrich does, and I don't know what his core is, I'm afraid.
0: Okay, we'll come I'll back. I'll say Hanover, um... just in case. I'm afraid that's not correct, but a good guess. Which Salvation Army band represents the Salvation Army at the National Service of Remembrance in Whitehall every year?
1: Is it the Household Troops?
0: It's not, I'm afraid. Uh, what is the title given to the first movement of Ray Stedman Allen's "The Lord Is King"?
1: It's something to do with... I'm heading for a big fat zero here, I can tell. Um, No, the the last one is my craft and skill, but I I can't remember the whole quote.
0: Okay, we'll move on quickly to
1: the next question.
0: What is the definition of Resurgent?
1: I shall rise again.
0: Correct. Who took over the ISB as bandmaster after Bernard Adams? Ray Bode. Correct. What is the name of the middle movement of Morley Calvert's Canadian Folk Song Suite?
1: She's like a swallow.
0: Correct. So, we've run out of time there. That gives you a grand total of three, which really isn't a bad Bandmaster Mind score. It is quite terrifying being in the hot seat, though, isn't it?
1: Yes, uh, I have that same sensation, no doubt, as other people, of, of, of the complete blank when you feel you should know the answer.
0: <laughs> well, let's go through those answers now, shall we? First of all, I asked you uh, which race of Manalan piece has the second movement written to imitate a banjo. The answer was the King's Minstrel. Oh, uh, the corps that German Staff Bandmaster Heinrich Schmidt attends is the Solingen Corps, and rather than being the household troops that represent the army at the national service of remembrance, it's the Regent Hall Band. Sorry, Paul. Um so you were very close and gave us the answer to the third movement in Race Demon Allen's The Lord Is King, but the first movement is entitled My Joys. And then you got the rest of the questions, correct? So well done. Once again, Trevor, thank you so much for giving up your time to join us on Fully Scored.
1: Been an absolute pleasure. Thanks, Matthew.
0: I'm afraid this brings us to the end of episode twenty-six. I hope you're suitably satisfied. If you've enjoyed your time here, then please leave us a positive review. Especially if you're listening on Apple Podcasts, they do love a good review. You can also follow us on social media. You'll find a fully scored presence on Facebook, Twitter and Instagram. Be sure to follow for extra nibbles and details about upcoming releases and interviews. Before we do say our final goodbye, a couple of thanks. Thank you to Trevor, Paul and Jonathan once again for giving up your time to speak with me. We really do appreciate our guests' willingness to be involved and for making time in their busy schedules to record. Thanks, gents. Thank you as well to Simon Gash, our producer, for cooking up such a tasty episode by blending all of the edits, excerpts and clips together into a well-balanced and nourishing episode. Thank you too. To the mystical band nerds for their ingredients for the band mastermind quiz and finally to you our listener why not join us again in our next episode goodbye and god bless